Welcome to the Next Door Neighbors podcast, a podcast where we talk about all things neighborly. Here are your hosts, Alex and Irina Mazukin. Welcome back uh, to Next Door Neighbors. Today, I have a very special guest. Uh, we have Andrew Blazer. Do you go by Andrew or Andy? It's uh, It depends on how I know you. Yeah. Most of the time, I introduce myself as Andrew. Uh-huh. Um, it, that was actually a, when I was 23, I was coaching track at Utah State University and they were in the same conference I had run in and most of my kids had been on LDS missions. So they were older than I was, but I was their coach. And so it became Andrew who just felt more professional, yeah. but like my family all calls me Andy and I actually have a middle name is, is Joseph. So uh-huh. AJ, uh, drew for part of high school it just depends on how i know you okay cool so i i respond to anything anything okay so we'll we'll, we'll go andy are you okay with andy andy's great cool andy blazer is uh, an olympic athlete uh, competed in the 2022 uh, beijing olympics in the uh, skeleton races um very fascinating skeleton races um how did you i'm sure you've been asked this dozens of times it's like why why skeleton races above all any other sport uh, it, it's the standard question, but I think it's one of those exposure questions because people aren't, like, there's a handful of us in the country. People don't know someone who's done my sport before, which is actually fascinating because I have a friend here in town who did, she competed up until, I don't know, maybe the year or two before I got into it. Um, but we didn't cross paths through skeleton. She just happens to be from here. Uh, we all kind of get into it one of two ways is the easiest way to describe it. For most of us, we either had a coach from a different college sport uh, recommend it. They're just like, hey, we think you'd be good at this. You should try it. Or we have happenstantially turned on the TV during an Olympic Games and saw it and thought that that looked really cool. There's a lot of people who participate in my sport that are thrill seekers. They're people who go out and, and look for that adventure and excitement and will enjoy skydiving. I'm not one of those people. Uh, I tell people it was a family joke, which um, my exposure to bobsled skeleton, everything had started with, obviously, the movie Cool Runnings. Um, <laughs> Very good choice. You know, I've got three older siblings and the baby. I think I was I was four when that movie came out. So my 11-year-old brother thought it was the coolest thing in the world. We make jokes about it all the time. But my older sister actually had asked me what I was going to do when I was done running track and I had always thought track was going to take me places that that was going to be you know where I I landed on in a career was just athletically track and field was my thing and then I kind of hit a point where certain events I wasn't getting better and I was a decathlete so we compete three four times a year maybe Uh, your body just doesn't do 10 events over two days every week it, week in, week out, it's it's too much to compete in. So most decathletes will compete three three times is a pretty heavy season. Four times mm-hmm. would be a really big season. Um, and my sister was just like, hey, what are you going to do when you're done with track? And I was coming to the realization that there was an, an end point for that. And what age, group, wait, what age is this? Because you're uh, 33, been, 34? Yeah, so that would have been 22, 23 years old. Okay. So. 2011, 12, up at uh, the University of Idaho is where I actually graduated from. So, history of decathletes. Shout out to the Vandals. Um, I know there's probably a lot of Bronco fans out there, and Absolutely. that's great too. So we support <laughs> higher education and athletics everywhere. Um, but <laughs> you're I good at this, like PR. <laughs> I, I I've been around it enough. Right. Um, so my older brother actually played football at Boise State, and 
between watching press releases there, my exposure through college athletics, listening to people and just watching interviews and stuff, you, you kind of learn what is okay to say, what is not okay to say. And I coach at a high school, so I'm, I'm all for my kids finding that wherever they're comfortable. And I'm not one who's like, boo. I mean, I do yeah. every once in a while, but most of the time it's a joke. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I, I chose up there and I was about 22 and it was just the conversation of, what I'm going to do when I was done. And I, I was like, I'm going to bobsled. Out of a joke that you and yeah. your sister exchanged. It was just one of those, I'm going to do it. Uh, what, you were 16 years old when that happened, or is this 23? No, this was like through college. Oh, this is so through college. Okay. When I was when I was in high school in 16, I still thought I was going to be running professional track. And, and you then, realize like you just can't do that. The, the toll it takes on the body of recovery. and Yeah, and I tell people like, so I was plateauing in, in a lot of the throwing events. I'm kind of smaller for... I, I was stronger then, but my upper body and whatnot, I don't carry a lot of mass. Okay. Um, so when it comes to throwing discus, javelin, and shot put, I was kind of not improving. And I was like, this is the end of the road for me. Now explain and, to me, as somebody who's not in sports, I've never really done any organized sports, so I'm not familiar with like collegiate level stuff. Okay. Uh, shot put, um, all this stuff. Is this a combine thing or is this something outside of that? So the the decathlon itself is a combination of 10 events. Uh-huh. So you go in and you do five events over like a, in a one day period. And then you do five events the next day and there's a scoring table. So if you throw, we'll just arbitrarily say 45 feet in shot put, it's worth this amount of points. Mm -hmm. If you pole vault 16 feet, it's worth this amount of points. Those events are done in the same order every meet. So it's the 100 long jump, uh, shot put, high jump, and then the 400 meter dash is day one. Then you go home and you sleep, hopefully, and eat something, and then you come back the next day, and it's the 110 hurdles, uh, discus, pole vault, javelin, and then the 1500. For me in college, I would do that day one and two of conference, and then I would come back and run open hurdles, long jump, high jump, pole vault, and the 400 hurdles, possibly with a prelim and a final over the course of four days. So my senior year, I think I did 17 events in four days. It's heavy. Yeah. That's It's the jack of all trades in track and field. Uh-huh. So I... I also joke with my family like I was never really an outstanding athlete in any particular event in track. I was I was good. I was a pretty good hurdler. I picked up pole vault well and I could get by in high jump and long jump. But I, I made a joke once that I was just like, oh, I wish there was an event for people like that. And my sister just looked at me and she was like, you mean like the decathlon? Like you are already signed to college to do that event. <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess I am. Is she I, an older sister? So yeah. she had a little more wisdom on it and kind yeah, of prep you so, for it. And they tease me. Like my family teases people relentlessly. Uh, That's nice. our communication style. Beautiful. We have kind of mean nicknames for each other. And eventually they become almost endearing. Like I have an older brother we call the fat kid. Sorry, Sherm. Is he like shredded? Because usually the people are like, this is like, this is smalls, but he's like six foot four. And, you know, so he's about my height. He's between six, three and six, four. Uh, He was a tight end. So he's trimmed down. Uh, They put a lot of weight on him as, as like a blocking tight end who could move. Like he had some footwork. I tell people my brother is probably the most athletic human I've ever met. And that's not me being 
blowing smoke, I guess. Yeah. Like he legitimately is one of overall athleticism can jump as fast as I'll get out and was so strong. I, I literally had like this role model to look up to growing up. So I, I don't know really where that nickname came from. I think again, that same sister, um, yeah. cause there's two girls and two boys in my family. I think that same sister had said something getting into the car once that like something stinks and it's not just the fat kid, like <laughs> referencing a gym bag or something. <laughs> and it just took off. And then we just, we call them that for your parents a, too. A long time. Uh, they try and curb it, but not yeah. always. They yeah. know who we're talking about, and every once in a while it'll slip. Yeah. Uh, my nieces and nephews call me Uncle Booger. Like, I'm just the Booger. Again, the same sister. She called me Boogie Bee, Bugs, yeah. things like that. Um, the shortest one in our family, we just called her the runt to her face. My family's <laughs> really tall, so she's like 5'8". She's not even short. She's a, a pretty tall human, and... That's just, we're just mean to each other. Well, so. it's kind of nice because, I mean, I think in sports or any kind of competitive thing, you have to have, you have to be able to, like, face any kind of adversity or whatever. So that kind of prepared you for anything, the old it's, sticks and stones. Yeah. And it kind of gets funny with ours. So my last name even isn't Blazer. It's it's Blazer. But everybody, just, like, we all have nicknames. And yeah. I just introduced myself as Blazer at some point. Really? I kind of got tired of correcting people and then it fit and sounds really cool with my sport where the entire intent is to go super fast. So I was like, Hey, like blazer. Yeah, that's I was cool. like, it's I'm, so appropriate. I'm blazer. And I just go with it. And I had to go. I was so, so English is my second language. Right. Okay. And so I was nervous about, is it blazer? Is it blazer? And so I literally went on Google and I like found footage from, of you during the Olympics. And I was like, blazer. Okay, cool. It's blazer. So it's, it's a Swiss last name. Ah, uh, and I believe our family heritage goes back to Bern, Switzerland. And it's a very common last name there. Uh -huh. The only time a track announcer has ever said my name right was in Switzerland. We were in wow. uh, St. Moritz. And uh -huh. the announcer there, instead of being in the tower, he sits above the cafe that's at the start line. And as they announce your name, you turn around and you wave. You acknowledge him back. Everyone else you can't see, so it's not really a thing. With the, the Swiss track is such a unique track and so cool in that regard. It's the birthplace of our sport, everything. But he says my name and he's like, he said it wrong at first because he had like the USA next to my name. So he sees Blazer, USA. And so he goes, Blazer. I mean, Blazer, that's a Swiss last name. And I turned around and was like, yeah, it, it is. So it was it was a lot of fun. He announced for a really long time multiple languages. He would learn throughout his life in Europe and would announce in your native tongue if he could. Oh, that's cool. So that that was really culture really kind cool. of announcement. Yeah. That's really neat. So you got a sister who kind of teased you guys all, kind of coined you guys' nicknames. Mm -hmm. uh, you had a, a pretty fun upbringing, sounds like, amongst your family. Um, you guys are all pretty close, I'm guessing. Yeah, so we actually all live here in the Valley. Mm -hmm. um, my brother is a football coach at Hawaii High School. He's the head coach over there. Uh, my other sister lives out, I, this sounds kind of weird, but north of Eagle. <laughs> like yeah. about as far north as you can go while still being in the Valley. Yeah. Um, and then my other sister lives kind of over by Meridian High School. My parents are over in that direction. We're about two miles. Beautiful. Three miles from Meridian High School. So the connection, you saw you saw the movie. Your sister's like, you should do bobsledding. 
And then at this point, you're 23 years old, right? Mm -hmm. Um, You're kind of hitting the cap of like, how far can I take track and field uh, to make a career of it? This whole time, are you like, one day I want to be like a professional athlete? Is that kind of what you're grown up thinking? Yeah. Yeah. Um, So it was kind of one of those, there's not a limit unless I put it on myself. And... I hit that point a lot of times when I was sliding where I like early days when I thought that I was going to be done. And then I really stepped back and I had a couple conversations with my dad where he's like, the only person telling you to be done is you. Mm. And eventually that got me really far along in the game, which is, is really cool. Um, but it's a, it's a scary transition and we all are facing it. Um, a lot of athletes who even just came back from the games, we go into this this lull post-athletics and you put so much of your time and heart and energy and just total being relying on it. And it, it creates this weird space where we identify ourselves as an athlete. And sometimes we do that so much that we forget ourselves how much more there is to us. And so I don't know if I ever really grew up thinking I was going to be like a professional athlete, but I did want to see how far I was going to take it. Mm. I just thought it would be in a different sport. Hmm. So I'm kind of facing that transition now um, with track, with, you know, even being a high school athlete, you know, there's a, there's a hard end date. And so the end of your senior year of high school, you're either going to college for sports or you're not. You can find kind of recreational stuff to still participate in, but you know that that kind of competitive time at your school is done. And you feel that same thing in college. And for me personally right now, I'm sitting there facing this where I'm going, I'm right back to that. The only thing telling me to be done is is myself. I could keep going. I could go for another four years and try and do this and and really see how good I can get. Or I could pivot and pursue something different. And it's kind of scary just with how much we really put into our sport and our craft to open the door to just completely unknown. And I wonder, is this, and correct me if I'm wrong, like, is it from just obsessing over something for such a long time and perfecting it and improving it and being the best that when something happens, maybe a, an injury or maybe just the cards didn't play out the way they did that you kind of go, I've been thinking nonstop, nothing but this for the last 10 years. Yeah. And, and we'll put me on a 10, nine, 10 year timeline, right? So I'll just use myself as an example where all of the decisions I make when it comes to work in my off season to pay for my season, uh, living situations, uh, accepting or not accepting jobs, moving to another city. I like I spent a summer in Colorado Springs living at the training center. Doing all of those, even weekend trips where it's like, hey, we want to go camping and do this. And I have to look at whether I can afford to do that down the line. A lot of it's going to be that kind of financial backing. But it, it, it creates a situation where everything that we do, there's a a cost benefit analysis almost of how much is this going to cost me down the line when it comes to my sport and my performance and how much am I missing out on that, that might possibly mean a little bit more to me. 
so I, I lived in Utah, uh, for three and a half years and I was working upwards of 70 hour weeks. My record there was a 94 hour work week Jeez. at a restaurant. I was on my feet moving around and my bills were paid, but my athletic performance was suffering. Huh. So then you have to find that happy medium. And when that is something that you're constantly evaluating, when that door almost closes, then you take a step back and you're like, oh, I can make a decision for me now. It doesn't have to be about this sport. But at the same time, do I want that to be my decision-making process or do I still want to pursue the sport? It's interesting because a lot of people have this misconception and myself as well. Um, when you look at somebody on TV and they're performing at the highest level of the division, representing a country, you go, well, they've been an athlete their whole entire life. And because they see logos and patches, they're like, well, they don't have to worry about money. They just have to show up and be the best. It sounds like that's not true. I can say, um, so most, well, we'll dial this back. Most people don't know what my sport is until they meet me and ask me about it. They remember us every four years when the Olympics happens. But outside of that, most people don't wake up and just go watch a skeleton race, especially not in the U.S. We just don't have the exposure to it. Uh, a lot of youth sports and boarding schools and whatnot happen in, in Germany, Austria, little smaller countries with a track that have that winter sport kind of drive with it. We don't have a college exposure to it. We don't really do a lot of boarding schools in the U.S. for that. We especially don't do it for winter sport with sliding. You see it with ski academies and things like that, but we don't have that. So most of us come from a different sport. We don't grow up around it. Then the U.S. Olympic Committee is, to my knowledge and understanding, and I may be wrong, but I've heard this multiple times while living out there, we are the only uh, international Olympic Committee, not, not the IOC, that's the wrong term, but the national governing body that does not accept federal funding to fund our athletes. Whoa. And that was in response to the boycott and the hostage situations and whatnot that were happening in the 1980 Olympics uh, for the summer games. Um, that the athletes and the, the USOPC now, at that time the, the USOC, didn't want the athletes' careers and whatnot to be used as political pawns down the line. So we get no federal funding. Uh, it all comes from either private donors directly to me, um, to donors and sponsorships within our organization, but most of that is going to pay for the actual travel on a season or the coaching staff, um, things like that. So I left work this year, as an example, October 18th, went to Utah and slid for a week. Then went to Whistler, British Columbia, and was there for 19 days, and then was back in Utah for about 10, and then flew on Thanksgiving to Austria, and I was in Austria for 10 days, and then was in Latvia for two and a half, three weeks-ish, spent four days in Germany over Christmas break and just went to a German Christmas market because I'd never had the opportunity yeah. to do it before. And then went back to Latvia when I moved back up to World Cup, 
spent Christmas and New Year's in Latvia with my team. And then we went down to Germany and we were there for 10 days and then went to Switzerland for 10 days. And then our Olympic team was named in Switzerland. And that's all out of pocket. That the last three race stops that I had. So the second trip into Latvia, the Winterberg World Cup and the Switzerland World Cup, I was what we would say is a funded position. So they paid for my housing and, and accommodations and food while I was there. But all of my bills and things back home still happen. So right. I still have a credit card that I've racked up time on now to get to these places. Um, my car payment, my rent for my actual home and things like that, those still all happen. Um, and I don't really get a paycheck, Jeez. if that makes sense. Yeah. So we get we get a smaller stipend and that's all just performance based. So altogether we don't make enough money. I think all in with where I am athletically, I have the opportunity of making about $6,000 off of my, my participation in the sport. Mm -hmm. I have picked up some coaching jobs that have paid for some things along the way, but we estimate between 17 and $25,000 a year. So you're looking at a hundred K of my own, money in over the course of a quad. So it's also kind of weird because we don't think a, a lot about one year at a time. Our our performance modeling and our baseline is based off of a four-year timeline because it's it doesn't do most of us a lot of good to be competing without the intent of going to the Olympics because that is the pinnacle. Yeah. So financially, it's a, a big burden and a stress, but when you take all of that into account and start looking at the, is it worth it? We've all been working so much. So we have this incredible work ethic and, and that obviously is learned through sport and participation in sport. But then when you are pivoting out of sport are trying to figure out where to apply that now. Hmm. It, it was weird for me the first couple of days when I came home and I was like, I don't, I'm not back on the floor at work. I'm just kind of hanging out now. And I have all of this, spare time, what am I going to do? Like there's only so much Netflix that I can watch before I'm just feel like my brain is fried. Um, and are you waiting till the next competition? Is that why, I mean, this, is there's like a lull that you're waiting for? So right now we're in our, our off season is what we would phrase it. And most of us will take a month or two off completely. Let your body recover, heal, really evaluate your kind of inner feelings with it and then we'll start training again but we don't touch the track for ice until october mm -hmm. so we're all in we live in six months in the real world and six months in sport world mm -hmm. and while we're in the real world we're still trying to train for when we go back into sport world so you're you're doing your weightlifting uh, sessions and you're doing your track sprint sessions, physiotherapy, anything that you need with that for a lot of us. Um, we use a term that we're, we're kind of getting away from of sledhead and our, uh, the, the downplaying of the micro concussions that we are all dealing with. So my face is dragging on ice at 80 plus miles an hour and any little bump there, my face is literally bumping off of the ice. Just rattling. And 
we say sled head, but it's it's this symptoms of concussions and they are that that's the word that nobody wants to use that's the the scary word in our sport because it will take you out of multiple races and then you're not scoring points for international ranking which is going to affect future rankings on the team financial assistance from the team so many of these things uh, access to medical care those things are all based off of my international ranking so if you are dealing with that, we're all trying to be comfortable talking about it, but also not letting it affect our ability to do what we have chosen as our career. And it's a very hard path to go through. You're already trying to fund yourself, find sponsorships. Well, if I'm injured and I can't give back to the sponsor what I said I was going to or what I did bring to the table in terms of you'll have exposure at this race, this race, this race, well, then there's not, there's not a lot of payout and there's not anything really protecting you from, from that sponsorship in the future or being able to feel like you held up your end of the bargain. It's, it's kind of a weird world. Yeah. Um, it's different than any sport I've ever really participated in because of so many of those things. So your head's bouncing, and I think that's a lot of things people don't consider. You're bobsledding, but you're thinking, oh, he's just he's going 80 miles an hour strategically after you know decades of training on a sled though what kind of cte could come of that so but there, that's a real thing your your brain's constantly i remember when i was still doing anatomy and physiology in school i used to be a respiratory therapist before i started doing youtube but i remember we're, we're just like learning about the brain and it's like it's just like three pounds of oatmeal or six pounds of oatmeal just like rattling in your brain shaken up going 80 miles an hour on these bumps so tell me my only exposure with CTE is from watching like the UFC, people getting punched in the face over and over, which sounds like it's not that far away from, you know, what can, you know, come from this. And I've, I've heard of fighters, you know, their, their circuitry kind of gets a little bit rewired from the brain trauma. They become impulsive and other things that might come from it. Uh, depression comes from things like that as well. Are you seeing uh, colleagues of yours or athletes that are experiencing those things, but also are they getting uh, you know, help from their sport as opposed to them raising that those funds for counseling and whatnot i will say we are trying to take steps the correct direction there isn't a perfect answer and there is still that inherent risk by choosing to participate in the sport that we do however there is still more that we could be doing to support that from athletes uh personally one of the things I've kind of struggled with, I took a, a pretty bad, we'll say spill. I, I crashed a little at a world championships. I was going about 70 miles an hour. The first thing to hit the ice was my face. It wasn't my sled, wasn't anything. It was four feet in the air because I, I just made a terrible mistake on the wrong corner to make a mistake in. And... I was flying through the air. I, I was over the timing eye. They don't even have my speed at that point. I was above a camera. The pictures and the replay of it, it's insane. When you watch it in real time, it happens so fast. Did, but, did it kind of go around the, the um, side curve of the... Yeah, so there's this corner in... We were in Altenburg, Germany, and it's called Kreisel. And so you... you come in and the first thing you do is go uphill a little bit but the the word kreisel is the german word for circle so we're going into a full 
360 degree corner. We call them pressures. It's kind of that uh, oscillation or undulation, depending on who you talk to. Uh, but we say oscillation most of the time. Um, and the up and down motion through the corner and those forces pulling you up and then your sled loses some pressure and then it climbs again. That corner is supposed to have three of those. I messed up and created a fourth one, but that fourth one was so late that there was no more corner. So then I was just climbing off the end of the wall and doing anything I could to stay face first and shiny side down is what we would say. <laughs> and in doing that, I, I kind of checked my shoulder down. So then my face caught the ice and then my sled hit and it whipped everything kind of up. And then I hit the short wall with my head again. So I had kind of two impacts, but I was still, I still to this day, I'm sliding in that same helmet. So I drive a motorcycle in the summer. I love motorbikes and uh, that's kind of my baby. But if I were to ever lay my bike down in a helmet, I'm getting a new helmet. Right. We don't have that luxury. There's only one, two, maybe uh, makers of helmets that are legal for us to race in. So if you don't already have a second one, you like are waiting for one to be formed and molded and two makers of this helmet yeah. are for rep that that's being worn by every country that's competing in the sport. Yeah. So I think there was a third one that came out of uh, Czech Republic for a little bit, but there's one company that now is the standard um, moving forward. I think after next year will be uh, called Suomi. They're out of Italy. And then the standard one comes out of, Germany, I believe, but they're called a UVEX. And if you watch a race, all of us that slide skeleton, for the most part, are wearing the same helmet. Um, there, there's some safety standard to them, but how we take that safety standard afterwards is what kind of matters to me. And so one of the things that I've had to face and kind of bring up is they pulled me from racing, but they didn't inspect my equipment to see if that was okay. And... We don't have any protocols in place for those things. So then a lot of it relies on the athlete to make their own choice. But we have so many things relying on our athletic performance and our ability to compete that come down to at some point, people are just going to put their head, hands up and let us make the choice to compete whether or not we're safe and healthy and in a good headspace. And you can watch it when some people take a, a big impact and they're trying to keep sliding. They'll be okay for run one. And then run two, they'll be making uncharacteristic mistakes the entire way down the track. There's and then we'll come back the next day and they'll be okay for run one. And then they'll be making uncharacteristic mistakes. And our, our brain health is something that we didn't take seriously for so long that now we're trying to change this culture and, and fix that. But we don't have all of the resources that we need to be able to do that. We don't have the numbers and the data on it. They're trying to come up with better. We wear mouth guards. So my teeth chattering while I'm sliding is something that they want to attribute to or think is a, is part of the CTE timeline. Mm -hmm. And so we all have a mouth guard. They're trying to design better mouth guards to see if that helps. They're trying to, to figure those things out. But the only way to really figure that out is to have a test dummy who's going down with what may not be the right answer. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a scary component for us. 
I wonder if you said it's a bobsledding or skeleton racing. I'm sorry. Uh, it's it's not a a widely not recognized but but uh, represented uh, uh, sport. Mm-hmm. Do you wonder? Is, is I wonder is it the reason why they don't have the studies that are done on this and funding set aside for studying the correlation of CTE or brain injury from the sport is because as opposed to like football or UFC is because there's far more representation there than this sport. Yes. And, um, yes, I think it's also with football, you have access to similar types of head trauma through multiple other things. And when you look at, let's just arbitrarily say almost every high school in the United States has a high school football team. And we'll just say there's 70 kids that are playing on that team. Well, now you have a huge group of athletes to pull from. And you may not be able to pull data from all of them, but you have a large enough sample size that when you start pulling information from smaller pockets of it, you're going to see similar trends. With our sport, we are so small and so, so uh, unknown, I guess, would be the word I would use. And our types of impact range drastically so you have just dragging your face you have taking a like side impact on a wall you have what i did where i came down full on face first um into even when we stop on some tracks we're just on a mat we just hit a foam mat at 70 80 miles an hour and you're trying to like get your head kind of away from that but also not bash in i've seen it actually hit people's helmets and cave in the front of their helmet um so we have a limited exposure. There's not a lot of funding for our athletes even to participate right now, let alone to start trying to open up all of these studies. And then with the differences in impact and, and speed, right? So you can get that information on a football helmet, but even at a full sprint, you're not going to have the same impact as 80 miles an hour to a concrete wall with some ice on it. Um, so there's a lot of things with that that are, are inhibiting that there was also, you know, we, we watch NASCAR races, not to watch the race, but to watch for the crash. Right. Yeah. And so there's some part of that where that's what gets the sport exposure. The highlight reels are very seldom people doing the right things when they're sliding. The highlight reel is the mistakes. Yeah. Unfortunately. And and I've personally made a lot of highlight reels of some really funny things that happen. Most of the time, we don't get hurt. You know, you should start a YouTube channel and just see if you can get some just <laughs> some ad revenue. Just making fun of it. Yeah, <laughs> I should. Um, I've got some great footage of it. And yeah. even at the games, I made some really big mistakes at the games. And that it's a weird in-between that that is what gets exposure. And so when I'm showing people what I do, I'll show them one video of a normal run and then like, and this is how I hurt myself. And then I show them that one because that's kind of that common ground comedy. You can always see when someone's making a visible mistake, you don't understand it when they're doing it right. It just looks like a water slide or a roller coaster and it's nothing like that. So, so again, so you're 23, you decide to do this. Um, you just got out of uh, a very long career of, 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 of track and field. 
you decide to pick up uh, skeleton racing. Where do you start? Where do you, do you Google and you find out oh, there's a training place and then yeah, buy so, a sled on eBay? What are you doing? <laughs> I wish it was on eBay. We're back to that super limited makers of them. Um, mine was a little weird. So I was up at the university. I keep saying a little weird. Mine was great. It was a super fun <laughs> experience. Um, I was up at the University of Idaho and I had a teammate who had graduated the year before me on our track team. He was a, a little shorter extremely muscular sprinter and we had a guy up at the university of idaho um we just called him trin i believe his name is greg's son um <laughs> he actually was a bobsled pilot for trinidad and tobago which is where trin came from was everyone just called him trin and he had mentioned it to sam mitchner and sam called the coaches and I had had this joke with my sister that I was going to do this. And then I just picked up the phone and called them and they, was there something that prompted you? Were you just like had a few cocktails be like, you know what? I'm going to take a risk. No, it no? was honestly just like, I wonder what would happen if I did take this seriously. Maybe I can go to the Olympics. Who knows? So I did. And now have you been on a sled before this? No, you just was... went from, I, I use my feet for running and jumping. And then now I'm going to do a little bit of footwork and then slide on this thing across a basically a roller coaster of ice yeah and it's concrete like you said so we we have this it's not a slow process getting into it you don't just walk out and in year one typically this has happened for people where they've done it but typically you train for a year two years maybe three before you really start competing i had kind of a different track through the sport that we can talk about in a in a minute but Essentially, I called the coaches back in New York. They were all like placid based. I was already moving to Utah, so I had already accepted a job with Utah State University's track team. So I was about an hour and a half from the track in Park City. I, I was like, "Yeah, I'll show up." So I called them, and they said, "Hey, we just we need you to take a combine." For us, taking a combine, it's kind of like the football combine, but it's more. Um, sprint based and then we do a three rep squat max and you do a single rep power clean just for sheer strength with bobsled as initially which was what i thought i was going to do you want to be really strong and also very fast there's a total weight so if the sled is we'll just say all together with athletes and the sled 1200 pounds well, if you can put 800 of that on the athletes, then you have 800 pounds trying to push 400 pounds for a speed-based sport, mm -hmm. as opposed to having 600 pounds trying to push 600 pounds. Mm -hmm. So they want to be a little bit more muscular, utilizable mass, and still have the foot speed to really get something out in front of them and moving. So we do this combine. It's those. There's an underhand shot toss. Um, so it's a 16 pound or a 12 pound, uh, shot put and you, you're standing on the block and you swing it between your legs and throw it out in front of you as far as you can. Most people face plan afterwards. Like a dangerous you, kettle swing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Just for distance. Yeah. So we do that and then you do a standing broad jump and you get, a couple of tries at each of them. Again, it's just a scoring table of if I jumped this far, I get this many points. Mm -hmm. And 
uh, went down and did that in Utah. Ended up there at the same one as Sam, my teammate. And Sam... I thought Sam was going to go the skeleton route and I would end up going the bobsled route. And instead, over time, it took about three years for me to really settle. I jumped back and forth between bobsled and skeleton. I finally settled on skeleton and Sam had settled into the back of a bob, bobsled and he ended up racing in the Pyeongchang Olympics in bobsled. And then four years later, I went in skeleton to the Beijing Olympics, but we both ran at the University of Idaho and had been teammates and roommates on track trips and different stuff like that. And his journey started with Greg's son kind of recommending him try it. And mine was my sister and I joking about it. I took it seriously. <laughs> and it all was just a phone call in a combine and they invite you back to New York and you do push championships. So they have a sled that's on wheels and they time how fast you get this sled moving and covering distance and different stuff like that. Okay. So at that point, are you, are you allowed, is, does somebody have to give you the okay to compete or do you kind of go, all right, I'm going to, cause I saw your track record of like, where did you start competing in 16? Right? Yeah. I think my first race, I don't remember. I think 2016 was my first full season. Full season. It's kind of weird. Cause we're like the school year where you start in one year and you finish in the other and we never know what 16 to 17 playing. kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it might've even been like February of 2016 and then, 16, 17, 17, 18, 18, 19. That actually is exactly what my my line was now that I think about it. Uh -huh. So um, I took two races and they were on the same weekend. So Park City, Utah, my home track. Took those two races, was sixth in the first race. Um, we have this issue. So we have two grooves that are cut out at the beginning of the track. They're about 35 meters long and they're they guide your sled. So for us, if we were just pushing a sled with runners with nothing holding us in place, you just slide you're just side to side right? anywhere. So the first run of my very first international race, I, I popped the groove. So I came out of the groove on like my third, maybe fourth step. And then it's just like a get on and try to point it straight because you just, if you're lucky, you can get it back in the groove, but you're going to be pushing really slow. I didn't get it back in the groove. I went right into the right wall and that ping ponged me over and I hit the left wall. I'm on my home track. I'm in this race that at that point, I don't think a lot of people thought I would be racing yet. And I cried for probably the first two, maybe three years of sliding. I just, I didn't like it. It didn't really? click. Found out later kind of that I had my sled set up wrong and I wasn't actually giving it any input. So I'm telling it to do something and I can't make it do what I'm asking it to. Huh. Um, and that was on me. I just didn't know my equipment. So there's cambers that you can control. Is that kind um, of angles, pitches or anything like that? On this? We don't, we don't do a lot of that. There is some research with that. Most of ours is our runner. So our so runners, runners, they're round. Uh -huh. And the, that's the part that's actually on the ice, but they have uh -huh. a couple different ways. So we have what we call rock and you Tighten this screw in the back and it bows that runner so that you have less contact on the ice. And then about halfway back on that runner, there's two grooves that cut out of it. So there is steering spine or it creates a spine. So that you have to buy a different set of runners. You can't change that. Um, so I think I have 12 or 15 sets of runners or something like that right now. But there's these two grooves and you can change that angle and how deep they are 
and get a different effect. So some of them you want like a sharper runner on colder ice or you want what we would say is like a loose runner on warm weather ice. Some tracks just favor certain ones mm. and it's just the, the shape of the track and, and your runner. And so we, we can play with those things. Inside of our sled, there's your balance point. So any weight that you add, again, we're on a total weight. So myself, my sled, my helmet, shoes, everything can't exceed 120 kilograms. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I don't know, 264 pounds. Um, so we move the weight inside of our sled in order to be balanced on it. You don't want to be super back heavy. You don't want to be super far forward. You That'll want cause you to of, drift and whatnot. Yeah, it can cause all kinds of stuff. Just if you're, if all of your weight's on the front of your spine. That was my question. Are, what would that cause? If it's you're centered, but all the way forward. Isn't that just fast, fast, faster drive? You would just be skiddy. So then oh. you're getting all these micro skids. Oh. And then if you think of it like a hockey stop, right? We have this spine on the back. If that's going sideways at all going down the ice, you're creating literally hockey stop motions that people don't see. So we have big skids or you have micro skids just losing control down the track. You're basically breaking at that point, yeah. right? Oh, you said the efficiency, right? You yeah. really got to. So is that, do you guys, are you guys your own technicians in that, in that scenario for your sleds and everything? We tend to be uh, within the U.S. Federation. Mm -hmm. Some federations don't. Uh, the German coaches handle all of their stuff. Some federations will have a sled tech that'll come with them. For uh, some athletes in our program, that works having coaches grab your runners, put them in, not tell you what's going on, and just go. Some days that works for me. Personally, I like to have a hand in it. I like to own my own equipment. There are some people who will slide on Federation-owned equipment. I did it for a little bit and then got away from that and bought what I needed and what I felt was going to help me be successful. Uh, so that I could have more control on it. Um, so in this this first instance, my first couple of years sliding, I had I had no idea how to put weight in my sled, and my sled was super light. So I just borrowed a steel plate from someone and taped it into the back of my sled, like a real DIY kind of thing. Yeah, huh? nice. It was in the padding. I still remember doing this. It was like a $2 Walmart blue foam camp pad. And I cut it all up and I taped this chunk of steel. I mean, we we're talking 18 inches wide and uh, probably 18 by 12 by one and a half, two. Like it was a yeah. big old chunk of steel. But I stuck it under what we call as our knee bars. And that's the part that we push down on with our knees to steer. That was my next question. Like, how do you steer? So you got bars yeah. underneath there. Okay. Yeah. So there's, there's shoulders. Uh, we tell people we still with our, our heads, our shoulders, knees, and toes. It's literally the song. Yeah. So I can kind of lean away from stuff, but that's giving it a little bit of input. I can push uh -huh. down with my, like, my shoulder itself, and it just kind of creates a little bit of warp in the sled, and it creates drag on one side. So I'll do a little bit here. Most of mine. You want to go right, you use your left shoulder, kind of like a motorcycle, right? When you push away wherever you look, that's yeah. where the bike steers. Yep. So that one's interesting. So we'll call them downstairs or upstairs going through a corner. And so if I'm going through a left-hand corner, I'll push with my right shoulder for a downsteer mm -hmm. or my left shoulder for an upsteer. It's Are exactly like that. small micro? I mean, or is it like too much? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Now you're, you're flying up in the air. Depends yeah. on the corner mm -hmm. and the track. They're all different. And sometimes you really have to like lean on it. And sometimes you are just kind of guiding it. Uh. And it depends on what the outcome is. So 
we're using and manipulating our sled to get output and a physical outcome from it. Um, I tell people it's a game of not science. Like our entire sport is not science. It's a guessing game that we're just like, well, that works. Now we need to replicate it. Interesting. And then you go down the track another time. And you're like, okay, that didn't work. I don't want to replicate it. Um, now, why not science? Because I'd be out imagining physics would be the thing, right? You're reading the track and whatnot. It is, it is a lot of science and it's a lot of physics. It's just, um, to me and the way I look at it is it's hard to replicate that and and do that consistently when you have different weather conditions, oh. ice conditions, if I'm trying a different runner, and no two runs that I take are ever going to be identical. Mm-hmm. And so it's a lot of feel to me. And so it's, I feel like this, or I want to build late height. I know how to do that. I want to get early height. I know how to do that. I need to generate cross. I need to stay kind of back on the curve side. And those all have different ways that I'll steer it. And in the the whole context of it, that science makes sense. But when you're going 80 miles an hour and you're just trying to do it off of feel and yeah. You're like, was that enough? No, it wasn't. There's yeah. not a science to that side, right? It's a it's a guess and check science as mm-hmm. opposed to, like, I know this is the outcome every time I do this. Yeah, it kind of makes sense now why you guys don't have technicians because you have now too many cooks in the kitchen that you go, hey, something's not feeling right. And you can't until Elon comes out with Neuralink, we can communicate with thoughts. You're like, I just, it just doesn't, it feels hard. And then you go, well, what is hard to you and soft to somebody else? So I mean, it makes sense that there, there's not, you know, a technician that you guys have to. Well, and it's kind of interesting to me. So even when we start kind of working amongst ourselves on our team, there everybody has different things that work for them. And I, I actually steer a lot with my toes. Probably shouldn't. And that's when you can just drag them on the back? Yeah, I'll just kind of tap a toe. And I uh-huh. have gotten really good at knowing how much input to give it to get the outcome that I want. Most people don't like to steer with their toes. There's certain corners that you have to, and then there's a lot of times that you just don't want to. Uh, most of my team drives a lot with their shoulders, and I learned to drive with my knees. So if I can avoid shoulder steering, I do. Mm. Again, there are some times that I do it. I went through an entire season where I was just trying to learn that to kind of stick it in my tool belt and have it when I need it, but not be something I relied on. Hmm. Do you, um, have you ever seen that show or that documentary, uh, Solo, Free Solo? Yeah, it freaked me out. Right, sweaty palms, right? The whole. So I, I remember Alex Holland in that uh, documentary when he was trying to scale El Cap, I believe, right? Yeah. That was a, he, uh, he was mentioning how every time he'd climb it, he had a journal and then he would, he would mention these like small details. It would be like left uh, tip pinky into small nub uh, here or, or the, 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 the crest of the knee into the small thing. Like there's such small things that a naked eye would not notice, but he found these landmarkers. Do you do that when you race? Yeah. And we all have our, our notebooks, journals, whatever you want to call. Captain's log. Uh, yeah. And we go through it and we will write down ice temperatures. We'll write down what the air temperature is, what the weather was doing, what my runners were, my rock was. Um, for me, I, I break the track down into five spots. So I'll have an, a late, middle, late, uh, middle, middle, early, and then early. And that's 
what I say is my entrances to a corner. Mm. And then I'll talk about kind of my height coming off of it. And then whether I was working on the first pressure, the second pressure, and then we'll talk in the peaks of the pressure. So our sled will do certain things if we're, if we're storing energy in it essentially is what we do. Mm-hmm. So if I'm giving it a down steer pre the peak of the pressure of that corner, I'm storing energy mm-hmm. that's going to have this outcome. And then if I'm post the peak of the pressure or to the peak, it's going to have a different outcome. If I want to create cross, it's, it's using that energy in a different kind of way. And we write all of that down. Otherwise you can't go back and, yeah. and refeel that. And we do a lot of kind of visualization work with that. And so we'll sit there and we'll take our notes and we'll watch uh, POV videos and try and get familiar with tracks prior to, to just being on the track and have as many predetermined kind of scenarios in our mind runs. One of the things that I kind of preach when I'm coaching or when I'm working with younger athletes and stuff is just to never have the perfect run in your mind run. Hmm. And so I, I feel like it becomes so rehearsed that we can always rehearse a perfect mind run. But if you're only rehearsing that mentally, when you have something that doesn't go to plan, you don't know how to get out of it. You don't have a contingency. You don't have the mindset of, oh, I need to do this instead. I was too early here. I need to to do this instead. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, if you go late into a, a big corner and you were trying to go middle early, how hard do I need to lean on this? Well, if you haven't rehearsed that in your mind, when it happens, you, a lot of people just kind of, freeze and so it's it's almost like that fight flight freeze instinct and your parasympathetic and sympathetic nervous system and you're trying to control all of that if you if plan a didn't work right because you don't think about the perfect run but it almost sounds like you're saying like adjust to the runs when the first option doesn't work right Mm -hmm. um can you still have great timing like so if you're like the, the the perfect approach to this is to you know break accelerate or store the energy at this peak and that doesn't work and you go to plan B, can you still save the race? Yeah. And you can see it happen with some people. Um, I'm going to use Martin's Dukers as an example. He is, he's in his late thirties. He's been sliding for a long time. His dad is the track manager of one of the toughest tracks in the world. Um, up in Segula, Latvia. Uh, one of my favorite tracks it's mentally a daunting beast of a track and he if you watch him in races he's always doing something and you'll watch his knee kind of go or his shoulders will go or we'll watch him in training because he's trying so many different things to figure out what works and what doesn't in any given day in any given race but he's the kind of guy who where did he finish? He had one race where he like flipped across the finish curve. I think it was on Lake Placid and still ended up meddling. Um, but there are, there are very seldom times where we'll watch a race and think that someone has the perfect race. A lot of it comes down to your mental prep and the amount of runs and time that you've had on your specific equipment. And, 
and being able to recover and save a race. Um, so that race that my, I popped the groove, I was 17th after the first run. Not a great save. The second heat, I had the fastest run of the race and ended up moving into sixth place. Like I passed 11 people just in being able to come back and flip that. It was a, a lower tier race. There were a lot of newer sliders and whatnot, but being able to to recover that, it happened in between heats for me personally. Mm -hmm. But there's very seldom races, even races that I've won that I I come down and I'm like, that was the perfect run. Most of it is nope, flip, recovery. Like how flipping your mindset uh, in a super fast environment yeah. and being able to recognize and then be able to adjust in the race mm -hmm. is a hard thing to do. But uh, talk to me about mindsets. So you were talking, mentioned a little bit about the beginning of your journey with your dad telling me that you're your own limit, which I love. That that's so great. Um, and then the mindset as you're competing constantly and you know, the rankings, it's not just like your first, second or third. I mean, you're, you're, you know, you're 27th, you're 16th, you're 12th, the ranking all over the place and defining what success or failure is. Cause it's so sometimes easy to go successes either I'm on the podium or not on the podium. Walk me through an athlete's perspective that competes at such a high level. Ooh, that's a really tough one. So for me, I'm a bit of a realist personally. And so I've had moments where I've been talking with people within the, the USOPC even where I've had to tell them just, I'm more than likely never going to win an Olympic medal. I am fully aware of that. But to me, becoming an Olympian was in all of that time and training and energy effort decisions, everything that went into that nine year process to get to a point that in that meeting that we had as a team to name the Olympic team, I knew the outcome ahead of time and, and creating that for myself is what made me the athlete I am. Um, why did you know? Sorry to interrupt because I know it's going to go deeper, but what, cause you said your dad said you're your own limit. So you limited yourself in that situation. Yes, um, that is, it's a hard thing to say. I just also know in looking at who I compete against, the amount of time that they've been competing, the differences in technology, we kind of say that we're in an arms race with other countries right now. It's an equipment arms race and being able to have the superior equipment and access to tracks, ice time, financial support, all of that plays into essentially results. And, you know, uh, Tomas Dukers won the World Cup in Latvia on his home track 18 years to the day after he won his first World Cup on the same track. Wow. So when I'm looking at someone who's been sliding for 18 plus years... 20 plus years and I'm going into year seven of competing, uh, the, the game of catch up when we're already behind and then behind in equipment and then behind in mm. everything. It, it just, am I going to say that it will never happen? No, 
That's why I said more than likely or most likely. It would be a very uh, unlikely outcome. I am aware of that. And that's kind of where I am with that in my own athletic journey is, is identifying what the end goal is. And it also isn't always set up for success for us from even my, my program where it's always preached like you can go to the Olympics. It was never you could win the Olympics. Mm. And there's a a power to self-talk, but there's also a power in self-inflation and um, setting expectations too high. So it's a little weird that I, I said it again. Um, it's kind of <laughs> something that I, I had to reframe and work on myself was just what is good enough for me and is just 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 going to the games good enough or is that going to leave me feeling slightly empty and like I didn't do enough and that's something that we kind of battle with athlete like in general being an athlete you battle that and you start thinking about and comparing yourself to every other athlete out there and then you're trying to find reasons why you're not as good as and for me I'm I'll, I'll just say it. Like, I was really happy with my season. I took a lot of races. I had a lot of highs and I had a lot of lows. And I still think it was a successful season. Mm-hmm. And that success is just defined in within my own expectations. I expected myself to go in and to fight for a spot on the Olympic team. We have a criteria that's put out. Um, sometime in the summer, usually June, July, that is how teams are named, how to qualify for either a World Cup team or an uh, an ICC, which is Intercontinental Cup. It's a kind of step below World Cup. NAC or Europa Cup, North America's Cup, and um, Europa Cup. So we have a criteria that lists all of those things. And there's also an Olympic criteria that is published in Olympic year. That Olympic criteria was if we qualify one sled, it is the highest ranked slider. Hmm. If we well, on the international points, so each race finishes worth a certain amount of points. They total up your top seven finishes in Olympic year this year, particularly uh, usually it's eight. So they, they give you, these are the points we're going to take your top seven, however many races you qualify for, get into, whatever. If we only have one sled that qualifies in the quota, it's the top ranked. If we have two sleds, it's the top ranked, and then we have a discretionary spot that is a discretion criteria that's also listed, and it comes down to the selection team talking, and they talk about your dedication to the team, your... Uh, attitude toward your team and teammates, your push and how quickly you push the sled, international race finishes, uh, domestic race finishes or national team trials races and everything to choose who that second spot is. If we had qualified a third sled, it would be one and two on rank. Number three becomes that discretion spot. When I say that I already knew, I had 
accrued a, a lot of points ahead of my team. So altogether, we ended up qualifying one sled. I was the only sled that was in a position to qualify. If I had not been sliding, the U.S. wouldn't have had a slider at the Olympic Games in men's skeleton. So wow. that's, that's a huge win. Yeah. So when we know, when I say I knew that I was going to go, yeah. walking into that meeting, I had already known. So I, I did the math. There wasn't a way before even that race for me to not qualify, um, which is both a blessing and a curse because then I kind of get to just slide super free. <laughs> and then people don't necessarily see that I'm looking at a lot of different things and I'm trying either different equipment or a different setup or whatever in the race scenario. Mm -hmm. They just see the result and it wasn't a great result, but they don't see all of the growth throughout the week of training or everything else that I'm yeah. working on. So it, it's interesting um, in defining success. I think that that's a very personal kind of definition and, and success for me is not the same as success for someone else. And my biggest thing is, did you reach and really, did you put in the work to reach your highest potential? Mm. So if you have, reached your highest potential, I think you are a successful athlete. That potential is going to be different for me than it was for my brother, than it was for either of my sisters. We just all are different athletes. And I, I don't know. It's a weird, I said, I've got to stop saying It's that. all right. It's, um, it's this mental headspace of knowing your self as an athlete and then knowing where to place that limit on yourself. Yeah. And that limit is more of an expectation limit than it is an actual physical limit. And so if I had set my expectations coming into Beijing that in my first Olympic games, without a lot of these different support systems that we've already kind of talked about, I expected to walk in and win. I was going to set myself up to not be successful. I expected myself to go in and race to the best of my ability, mm. which I'm still trying to grapple with. I don't know if I did uh, necessarily race to the best of my ability, but in context of not being on that track in the fall and only having 10 training runs prior to racing, uh, most of the field had 60 runs on that track before we were racing. Yeah. Again, we're back in that. I'm two steps behind already. So if I had set an unrealistic ex expectation when the starting line for me is at a different place than the starting line for most of the field, I'm not going to feel like I was successful. That, that win and that success happened in getting to the Olympic Games. So with that, you know, I think everybody thinks, well, the goal, at least civilians, non-athletes, um, we look at the Olympics and we go, well, the goal for them is probably to go and medal and be on the podium because that's where the sponsorship money comes in. That's where Omega pays for, you know, gives you six figures a year, stuff like that. When when you kind of redefine success and you, you crunch the numbers and you go, where, what's the best I can do? What can I guarantee, right? Um, almost like under promise and over deliver, right? How can I hit my quotas? Is it still like financially like fruitful or is it, are you always because of how expensive the sport is and the traveling is, is it, is it causing you to 
kind of stay in the, the red? Um, personally, I'm still kind of in the red. Mm -hmm. um, there are people who have found ways to make it work and we all have to be our own best advocate. Yeah. It's, it's caused some rifts between specific athletes and we all kind of have to check other athletes or a lot of like the newer athletes who come in and they are out there trying to talk about all these sponsorships and how they've already been promised this and they've been promised this. And we're like, well, you haven't first of all. And then almost kind of educate them on like what you're saying is wrong. Um, because it does create a spot where other people, their sponsorship opportunities and whatnot may be affected by it. There's a difference in when you define success in, on an individual term, right? So we're just going to use Nathan Chen as an example. Nathan Chen was expected to meddle. I feel like he would not have been successful if he hadn't meddled. But for someone who's not expected to meddle, both on a personal and in a program wide, um, looking at the USOPC, yeah. then for some people being successful isn't, maybe it's a top 10 finish. Maybe it's, you know, in any given year, We'll, we'll look at Michaela Schifrin. She didn't have a great games, but I don't think anyone is going to tell me that Michaela Schifrin is not an, an exceptional skier and is not a successful skier. So I think we all want to be on par with those athletes, but if everyone were on par with that and if everyone were expected to have that same performance then no one would have the outstanding performance, mm. right? So if we were all the exact same skier that Michaela Schifrin is or the exact same skater that Nathan Chen is, and if we were all at that level, then how do you know who wins? So I, I don't know. Um, the, the whole picture of it and the Olympic Games have sat on such a pedestal for so many people but then they're celebrated for that kind of two weeks of the Olympics and there's so much more going into it. And there are, there are so many people who deserve to be regarded as an Olympic level athlete, whether or not they've ever been to an Olympic games. And I don't ever want athletes to feel like they are less than at the end of a career because they may not have hit that pinnacle. And I have teammates that I watch who have done it. And every four years you have two, one, maybe three guys in skeleton who are named to an Olympic team. Mm -hmm. But if you look at the whole team, if there's 25 guys on the team and only two of them get named to the Olympic team, there's 23 other I'm sorry, mom, if you listen to this, but 23 other badass athletes that are... That's what your apologies for? You said yeah, badass? Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> that feel inferior because the success was determined by someone else's standard and not their own standard of success. Uh, can I ask you a personal question? And this is more of a segue from... And feel free to disregard, we can move on. But this is in regards to Michaela 
and you said Andy's the other uh, Nathan Chan. Nathan Chan, right? And you said, uh, can people compete at the same level? The big hot topic right now in the sports, you know, collegiate sports, and I don't know if it's if it maybe has or if it will make its way to the Olympics. But what are your thoughts as an athlete um, in regards to this whole biological male female competing in the other sports? Um, if it's not a personal question, that one is. It's kind of hard for, and this might not be the answer that anybody really wants to hear. Um, so the you uh, the IOC has specific standards that have to be met in terms of uh, hormone levels, whatnot. Uh, if people are transitioning with collegiate sports, I, I won't lie about it my biggest struggle is that people almost are attacking the athlete and i still think that if you want to compete you should compete whether that's at a college level at a city league level at a professional level whatever it is i i love sports right and i don't want anyone to ever feel um like they aren't allowed to find a place to compete. What I really don't like is when we start attacking the athlete as an individual instead of the system that is what you aren't supporting. So say the NCAA has a one-year hormone replacement therapy um, system. So if you have to be on hormone suppressors or whatnot, medication for one year, are you mad at the athlete for participating in sports or are you mad that the NCAA possibly set them up for greater success while going through that transition because they haven't, right? So I, yeah. it's who you're holding accountable and whether or not you're actually upset about um, people competing in sport or not or are you mad about the root of your belief in people transitioning? Are, does yeah, that make oh, sense? Yeah, it makes sense. No, it makes so 100% sense. So it's, it's, it's a scenario that we don't have all the answers to. And I, wherever you fall on that spectrum and what you personally believe, again, I just, I want people to be upset at the right institutions and not at individuals for making choices for themselves for sure because somebody choosing to transition choosing to participate in sport going through those things that really doesn't have a lot of bearing on my life sitting in boise idaho yeah um but it does affect other people's lives and that's where i don't think i have the answers because there's not a way for inclusion across the board when we're still sitting in two kind of categories, right? You have category A and category B, and you have to fit in those two categories. But there's even a spectrum within that when you're looking at biologic hormone levels and things like that, there are multiple male athletes that have a lower testosterone level that are still competing against male athletes with a much higher testosterone level, but they're not allowed to take hormone therapy. On the the reverse side of that, 
there is argument that a male, a biologic male born athlete transitioning to uh, female athletics, that their body is in worse shape because of that transition and hormones that are being introduced and whatnot. And I am not a doctor. I have no idea where that goes. On a personal level, I just, I'm a big fan of making sure that your feelings are directed at the actual institution that they should be, not at an individual person for making their own choices. I think it's very beautifully put. I I think a lot of people maybe miss that part because I think at the end of the day, as people are tribalistic and divided, they always say somebody's right and somebody else is wrong, right? Or one way is right and the other way is wrong. And I think the only way to fix that is to bridge the gap to understand the, the, a person is still a person. And if, if they mean well, then they're a good person. If they mean poor or bad, then they're a bad person. Um, you've, you've been openly, uh, you've been public about being openly gay uh, about it. And so you have a little more understanding than I do in, in the community, the LGBTQ plus community. So you said not to attack the people, but attack the organization, which I completely agree, right? They're the ones that are making the rules. They're making the, the points of like how long you should, can or cannot be on the, the supplements. What would you think, what would you say from, because of you'd be, be a better per, spokesperson for this, what do you think from the association side of things would be something that would be fair to both an athlete like yourself, um, understanding both communities better than anybody else? What would, you, what would you say would be the perfect answer to make everybody happy? I, I really honestly don't think that we have it. We never and have. in... In the greater scheme of things, we live in a very polarized society. And that's something that I also struggle with because I don't think, when you look at it, even if you're looking at like a political system, right? There's there's the far right and there's the far left is kind of how we identify it in the US. But most people don't fall all the way this way or all the way that way. And we're back to categories. Most people fall somewhere in the middle, and we don't have a a well-enough-designed system for that, and we don't have a concept of it. And we like, even on a psychological standpoint, you like schemas. You like consistency. You like boxes. You like to know where to put things. And then we start doing that with people or not. And so I I want people to find the same joy in sport that I have had, but then we're back to individual success. And so there's a lot of hot topic with the UPenn swimmer, uh, Leah, I believe is her name. Yeah. And... And whether or not you walked away from that race with a first place trophy, a second place trophy, a third place trophy, whatnot, did you swim any slower because she was in the race? And then, or did you go out and do your best? Regardless of what the trophy, the trinket, at the, the outcome is, did you still participate at your highest personal level? We don't have a very good concept of that. So then 
in order to really facilitate everyone participating, I feel like we would have to have another category created. Yeah. But then to do that, we would have to have a higher acceptance of that and let all athletes as they're growing up know that there is a place for that. But in order for that place to be created, everyone's going to have to accept that this is a reality. So it's hard for me to really talk about that just because I don't know enough with the science behind it, with the, the fairness, the outcome for the other athletes that are in those races and competing against people who they may feel it's not fair for them to compete against. But I'm also a very big proponent of your success does not mean my failure. My failure means my failure just as much as my success that I define means my success. So it's a, it's a probably a different take on it than most people have. I don't have the answers. That's well, kind I, of the long and the short of yeah, it. Yeah, but I, I, I again, I'm going to just echo that again, that I love the way you phrase it because this question, at least your answer to this question, probably wouldn't have as much weight if you, we didn't start this podcast with you mentioning how I'm, I'm redefining what success is. Success is not I got first, second, or third place at the Olympics. Uh, success is I did my best time and I got to the, we qualified my sled, right? So like, you're a winner. You know, you might not have the podium stamp, but you're the winner in that. And so it was the same. It's it's it applies so well to this topic that's super hot right now for discussion, and it's a very in favor for team people, right? Where it's like, just listen, we can have this and we have that. We can create another category here if both people are willing to to say, hey, I'm one of the biggest arguments right now, and this is before the UPenn. Or is it Penn State, right? What is it? You- uh, I think it's the university. It's Penn. Penn. Okay. So. Um, is before that one, there was a UFC fighter, a female UFC fighter. I don't remember the name. I'm sorry. But um, biological female fighting um, a, uh, a biological male who transitioned to, to a female. And allegedly, and I don't know the ins and outs of the story, so I'm not going to quote it verbatim. But it, the, the argument was that the biological female did not know that this, it was not disclosed that this was a biological male. Mm-hmm. So in the realm of disclosure, you're walking into a, a fight, you're, you're a 155 pound UFC male fighter, and, or I'm sorry, female fighter, and you're walking into a cage thinking this is gonna be another 155 pound biological female, and the outcomes are different. Well, you're taken by surprise. It's almost like an unfair thing, but, if this biological female knew that this biological male who now transitioned, and are you both willing to accept the, the terms, then who would want to see that? that? That's exciting, right? There's a lot of females that are in the UFC that are so dominant that would destroy half the guys in the UFC. And I think, I think if we could create another category or another division where people from both sides, it's like back in the day, uh, the UFC used to have this thing where it's like, instead of now everybody has mixed martial arts, you know, you have a little bit of grappling and wrestling and striking. It used to be karate guy versus wrestler guy. You know what I mean? You see like which one's best. And this would just be another category where you go, not to say, you know, a, a person who transitioned is better or could, could they beat? Not that, but it's like, are you willing to take on that division? So I think a lot of that kind of divide on it is 
first of all, we don't really see it with a lot of uh, female to male transitioning athletes, right? So that inherently kind of exposes a lot of the, we're going to use the word sexism that's out there that men are therefore superior. Mm -hmm. I have a teammate, um, Alana Myers-Taylor. She's a five-time Olympic medalist in women's bobsled. She played softball in college. She is one of the strongest women I have ever met. I would not go toe-to-toe with her in any... Now, she's one of the sweetest humans I've also ever met. Incredibly intelligent. I'm not afraid of her throwing a punch at me. She'll take me down with her words first. (laughs) But she's very, very strong. She has also worked to be very, very strong. When I take a step back and look at the entire uh, transgender participation in sport issue, if you want to label it as an issue, um, and the, the kind of fairness in that, I find it interesting that the people who are up in arms about it aren't as up in arms when you have cheating within the same category, right? So you're mad that somebody's body produces a higher testosterone level, but you're not up in arms when a male sprinter tests positive for steroids when he's literally artificially introducing something to gain an advantage. And so I'm not going to say that it is 100% fair or that it's not fair or any of those in that, that regard because for me personally, it hasn't really affected me. And I'm not going to say that it doesn't affect other people. And I I know that sounds very, very selfish, but for me, I'm more upset when I go into a race with someone who is unknown, you know, doper, doper, doping scandal type issue. And they're, they're not being held to the same standard that we're holding someone who's making a personal choice for their life to, um, but we also are very nearsighted individuals. We see to the end of our own nose, and then sometimes it's it's breaks on because we don't want to see what's out there. And I haven't done a lot of research on it and really um, I haven't learned enough about the issue and the both sides of it, but I also haven't needed to, right? If that makes sense. Yeah, so, but you also I, a male competing in a male sport, right? Yes. Now, is, is it a, a, um, I don't know if that's right. Is it a unisex sport? Like, do you, so male, no, so there's, there's men's races and women's races. Okay. And then technically four, we say four man bobsled, but mm-hmm. women can compete in four person. Right. It's just not super common. It's happened a couple of times, yeah. um, unless that rule has changed and it very well might have. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to skeleton, it's me, my sled, we're, in an individual race, individual race. But I walk into races with people that we watch their times drastically come down on their sprint time. And we're like, okay, this person's part of a federation that has already been in trouble for doping. But the same people that are up in arms about transgender participation in sport and people trying to remain in sport are not up in arms about people who are actually visibly cheating. Yeah. But your argument is that they would have a higher testosterone level or that you'll see it. Now, when we were talking about kind of that 
time frameless stuff where say it's a year, say it's two years, say it's three years, where, where does that, that break happen? When does the, when is long enough that there's no longer a biological advantage? And I think that's something that would have to be very highly researched before I could even take a stance on it because I don't honestly know. I don't know where that, yeah. you know, people who have used uh, anabolic steroids, they show improvement and athletic advantage for a longer time frame than just when they're on what we would say the juice or whatever, you right, call, yeah. whenever they're using uh, illegal substances. There is there's has to be a time frame when that falls off. Right. Yeah, no, if, th if there could be a measuring rod, I think, right? Because there's this humorous saying I've heard uh, not too long ago in terms of, again, UFC ex examples. It's like, like I mentioned, there's there's female UFC fighters who are just, like like you said, you have a friend, female uh, uh, colleague, um, athlete who could destroy plenty of guys out there. So the saying that I remember hearing was like, there's, um, there's a lot of women who can be beat the living snot out of a lot of guys, but there's not, you know, what was the saying? It's like, uh, there, there's a lot of gals who can beat up a lot of guys, but there's far more guys who can beat up far more, right? So unless we could have a, a, a way to, just like you'd go to a Nutri shop and you put your hands on the scale uh, and it runs the electric uh, electrodes to your body and says, yeah, you have this much muscle mass, this much bone density, this much fat, this much water. And then you do, well, VO2 max, you can improve through training. But uh, unless we have far more stringent detailed things where you go, okay, like you said, like, and you have a better exposure to the world of the LGBTQ plus uh, uh, community where it's like, maybe there's more information or more awareness of like, at what point do the effects of testosterone uh, you know, leave or, or, or estrogen come, I don't know. Well, and it opens up a, a totally different thought process about kind of that inclusion in sport. Mm -hmm. And the only reason that I really feel like it's such a hotbed and hot topic, I guess is the, the correct term right now is because we aren't in a spot where we've been exposed to it frequently. And so over time, as you are more exposed to different concepts, ideas, thoughts, things like that, I don't want to say you become desensitized to them, but you become more inclusive and accepting of them for most people. And so, I mean, there was still this weird thing when, when people find out, I mean, it doesn't take long when you talk to me, but when people first find out that I'm gay and that I'm also a, an athlete. And they're like, wait, you're gay, but you're an athlete. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I didn't know that that affected that. I, uh, my apologies. <laughs> so I also drive my car. <laughs> yeah. And, and so I, I think throughout history though, that wasn't always that, that way. Right. Yeah. And so again, we like our labels and our boxes and our, our places to put things. And we have this idea of what, being a transgender individual is and what being a gay man is, what being a lesbian female is, what being bisexual. We, we like labels. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm just as on board with that as the next person because it helps me understand it. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, 
would caution people not to look at a transgender athlete and think that they are transitioning to win an NCAA championship. Mm. Right. And I think that that's the fear is people are just like, well, everyone's just going to be transitioning to go win this medal or to win this race or do this or do that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm fairly positive that the backlash and the way that we almost degrade transgender athletes who are just trying to compete isn't something anyone would openly choose to do. They're just mm -hmm. like, yeah, this is, you know, that one trophy and that one race means more to me than, than the way that I'm regarded in my daily life. I don't, I honestly don't believe that athletes are out there and they're just going to go transition because it's the easier route. That's literally the antithesis of athletics. They're, they're able to separate themselves as an athlete and still have a desire to compete in athletics yeah. and who they are as a human being and how they identify and what they do in order to feel comfortable within their own skin. And that's, again, nothing that I feel like the general public really needs to have an opinion on. <laughs> and yeah. I mean, that's part of my kind of little independent roots. And I'm like, you do what you need to do for your life and yeah. for you to be comfortable with yourself because... I'm going to do the same things for me in my life to be comfortable with myself. And I just, you know, I think want... as, I think as a, as a, as a, as a straight man, when we see something on the news where, cause you're right, it's never like, you don't see guys throwing up in arms be like, there's this woman who's trying to compete in my, compete in my male sport and she's transitioning. That's not fair. No, most of them be like, yeah, bring it on. Let's see what you got. Right. But I think as a, as a straight male who like hears stories of like, okay, there's a, a swimming competition and there's a, a male who transitioned to go into it. Now, we're not going to generalize, right? Because we can't put everybody, because now we're playing the same part of like far right, far left. But the reality is team people are like in the middle, right? We're, we need to be more compassionate towards each other and understand that, yes, people want to be perform at the highest level of a division, right? Like accomplishments are very important. But... I also believe, just like we said earlier, so I think as a straight white male, when we see this, these, 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 um, you know, what we in our side of thing would be like, that's injustice, right? Somebody's taking advantage. They're they're stripping um, trophies from these, let's say, women's sports. It's I think we see it as like an unjust, uh, an injustice that's happening to uh, what we would consider not to say all women are weak, but to like a, the weaker vessel of the, of the community kind of thing. So we try to be chivalrous and be like, we need to defend women's sports. So I think that's where that side of the coin is coming from. But just like we're not gonna generalize everybody, you said not everybody who transitions from male to female or female to male does it to uh, dominate a particular division, right? Let's say the, the women's division that to some people it might look like, oh, as a male, that'd be easier to, to dominate. That's true. I don't, because being an athlete is so difficult, but we can't also generalize that all people have good intentions, right? So like, for example, we've seen plenty of stories of just POS people who take advantage of other people, right? Who, uh, you know, young guys who will trick a an elderly couple to give them their 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 social security number or something like that or 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 trick somebody again we're talking about extreme cases right we're not saying this happens all the time we're not going to generalize everything but you you i mean even as sickening stories you'll hear where like let's say a gender neutral bathroom or uh a, a male to a male 
a male who transitioned to female walking into the bathroom and then a, a horrific act of violence happens, right? Again, extreme cases. So what if we took one of those athletes and what would be wrong to say that they might have the same malicious intent without generalizing? I, I think you would be hard pressed to find a collegiate athlete who is transitioning and has taken that on for their life and find that malicious intent if you want to in it. Now, whether or not you agree with how they have chosen to define their own success, if that's winning an NCAA championship, if that's racing at an Olympic trials, whatnot, I think it all for me comes back to, are you upset with the athlete and their choices and their life? Or are you upset with the institution that is allowing them to compete? And so if you're mad that an individual is competing in the women's classification of a swimming competition, but you still give your money to that institution, you're still supporting their decisions and their right to make that decision for themselves. So if you are turning on an NCAA football game where the NCAA is getting money from hosting that, or if you're watching the March Madness basketball tournament, that's all the NCAA. Yeah. And so if you're upset that you have athletes that are, then you have to actually be upset about that and not just be upset at an individual making their own life choice. Yeah. And so I don't think, and I might be wrong, maybe I just haven't heard of them, but I've never yeah. met a, an individual who's transgender that is like, yeah, I did this so that I can compete for two years in, well, yeah. in college. Like, no one's going to do that. And at the same time, I'm not saying that it creates the most fair scenario, but I think people, again, are latching on to the polarized sides of it instead of the middle ground. You wouldn't have been as upset if that individual hadn't made the final. So one of the top, and I might be very wrong about this, but one of the top individuals out of high school is a distance runner, was male to female uh, transgendered individual and has failed to produce a result at the NCAA level competing in the women's category, but no one's talking about that. Yeah. Because they're not upset at the institution of that they're upset at the individual because it's visible yeah so it again it's just that that consistency where if you're going to be upset about this then you also should be upset about this but you're not and that that's the bigger struggle for me and again i'm not someone who wants anyone to be upset that someone wants to participate in sports. Yeah. I, I'm all for that. Like I've been an athlete my entire life. Uh, sports have brought me some of the greatest moments of my life. They've also brought me some of the lowest moments of my life. And being able to, to kind of have a talk about it, it's not something that I talk about very often because I'm not, I'm not sure on what the right answers are with it. Um, I had done a podcast and an interview with a gentleman, 
journalist down in LA named Sid, and I know that he just had a almost debate style podcast with someone about this, and I haven't had the chance to listen to mm. it yet. So it's a, a subject that I would like to know more about and and be able to form my own thoughts on the subject and my own feelings on the subject, knowing that I'm as educated about it as I can be. I, I really struggle when people are, when they say things, when almost when you challenge them politically, whatever, that they can't back up. Yeah. And so I'm like, I don't mind people having an opinion as long as they can back their opinion and then tell me why they have it. And there's almost an education side of that, right? right? So you and I can disagree on something or we can agree on something. But if we disagree on it, I want to have an open enough mind that I understand why you feel that way so that I can grow from that conversation. If we just continue to butt heads and think that I'm 100% right and you're 100% wrong, we're never going to grow as people. Yeah. And that's such an important part of, I mean, life. Like, could you imagine going 75 years through your life and just only think that you are 100% right all the time and then never be able to step back and be like, I want to know why this works for you. Yeah. And then maybe I can actually explore on what may work for me. But I have a lot of people that I've known who it's just, well, that's how my dad thought. That's what my mom told me. That's what, you know, I'm from Texas. That's how I was raised. Or I'm from Connecticut and that's what we do. And I'm like, but you're literally admitting to me that you don't have the ability to think for yourself. And you have this beautiful six pound oatmeal brain, right? <laughs> so let's use it. And and showcase that compassion and understanding that what works for me may not work for you. And that is okay. Yeah. The, the, I think one of the greatest realizations I remember having, because I, I grew up in a, in, a, in a very different environment as well, is the realization that our ideas are not us and they're, it's okay for them to change. But there was a period of time that we didn't think the way we thought. We didn't have an opinion about things. We didn't have a particular opinion about the second amendment, uh, you know, the right to bear arms. We didn't have an opinion about Republican or Democrat. We didn't have an opinion about, uh, you know, Ford, Chevy. There was a time that we just, we just kind of absorbed things like a sponge from our nurture, um, our upbringing. And then we just allowed that to form that voting decision, not voting politically, but voting in our brain, the execution of thought. And what really helped me is Realizing that I need to hear a lot of different opinions before I can form my own opinion, right? You can't just constantly hear one side. And that's why I love this conversation uh, about the, the, the sports and the LGBTQ community. And that it's like, it's not often you get to sit down because any information that a person might get would be exaggerated via social media of a far left or far right person. And half the times there's this uh, one side who is just strict and stern, maybe possibly laying facts, and the other side, emotional, upward, you know what I mean? So, and then you go, oh, there's, you know, kooky people. It's a little bit of that that polarization, and you have the, the things that we see and read about or hear about are the, the one-off exaggerated case. You don't 
see about the middle ground people very often, right? And that does fall in in our political system. That does fall in in our news uh, outlets and how what they portray. And the one story that you get is just the one story and there's the one-off case of it, not the standard. Yeah. And it's not the, the commonplace, you know, and it's... I'm trying to like think of how I I want to form that thought and I'm just I'm going to trail off for a second because yeah. it really is it's just this case of you don't hear about the average joe yeah. human you're not mad when you look at it if you look at sports as a job and again this may not be how you personally feel it may not be how I personally feel it's just another thought process on, or a thought on it is when you look at a job and when you walk in, if your manager is a transgender individual and you have a female boss or a male boss, are you upset that you have a transgender boss? Are you upset that you have a female who's a boss and climbed the ladder and got to where they are? Or are you upset that you're around an individual that you don't personally believe in in the choices they've made that work for their life. Mm -hmm. And so we see it in sports and it's the one-off and it's the big hot topic is, well, this transgender individual beat all of these non-transgender individuals. But are we just as up in arms about the individual who is the same height has uh, the exact same testosterone level, but was born a biologic female. Mm. Like they, they can test for those things, right? And there are many cases out there of females having either an intersex um, presentation um, or higher testosterone levels naturally. And we don't go through and test every athlete and test their their male sex hormone levels to see if they fit into this category. Um, but then sometimes it, it is held against people who, I had a teammate who tried for years, we have what's called a, a therapeutic usage, usage exemption, we call it a TUI for short, mm -hmm. that they will apply for a TUI because their testosterone levels were so low. Hmm. But if, they had been granted that and were able to take testosterone, would we have regarded that as them cheating or taking the proper steps to get to the same level as everyone else's testosterone? But again, there's so much science behind that that we just don't understand. And so when you look at even a sport like swimming where Leah won an NCAA national championship, I don't know how tall Leah is. Was she swimming against people? Swimming is a sport that length in the pool is generally a good thing. Yeah. So was she swimming against athletes who were significantly shorter? Was her margin of victory this huge margin of victory? It's, or was it still a comparable thing and there were just some other advantages just in general size and amount of time that they've spent swimming? Yeah. So I don't, 
I don't have the answers, right? And that's just, that's really yeah. all it is. It's just kind of this one-off thought that I am having while I'm sitting here talking to you about it. It's just, yeah. Um, yeah, what I else goes into it? I think once once science and technology gets to the point, or even does the systems in, in these organizations that they can have a more stringent body analysis, right, of a performance athlete, uh, and to the, the, uh, there's a, a, a very famous uh, UFC fighter, Yomero, Yoel Romero, and he is a biological male, fights, tank of a man. Uh, he gets his like temple shattered or something like that. He, they go, they check that the, the doctor, the doctor checks the, the temple and it's like five times the, the bone density of, a, of, of an average male. And there's this questioning whether or not that was part of like the Cuban testing that they did like back in like the 60s and stuff like that and genetic manipulation. So unless we have stuff like that, when they go, hey, these body types are not lining up. That's a, that's a difference. Or if they're not, create another division where it's like, hey, you okay with that? You okay with that? Both aware? Cool. Have fun at it. You get to get another division that you can win if you want, you know? Mm -hmm. um, thanks for sharing that. Uh, one last thing I, before we start wrapping up. Um, what would you tell somebody who, as somebody who has just went from one career path and had to basically create a whole new career path? And going back to what your dad said, you know, you're your own limit. What would you tell somebody who is either trying to start a business, reach for the stars or do something crazy and times are tough and they're constantly taking L's? Any advice you would give that person, what would it be? Oh, wow. That's a... I should have opened that one. Yeah. Wow. The LGBTQ part was easy. This uh, <laughs> I don't even know if that was easy, but I'm going to work on this one. Um, I think it does go back to that same thing. And I have a brother-in-law here in town. Shout out Devin McDonald, Air Supply and Pump. If anyone's looking for, for any work out there and needs anything done, give him a call. Um, Devin and I have had multiple talks about this where he's like, there are... There is money to be made. There are ways to go about supporting yourself that nobody else is taking that opportunity. And he is a great example of that to me where he has built his own businesses from literally the ground up. And he was serving on a non-compete and then started his own company and has done these different things. But then he doesn't kind of define his own company and what they do. And if the opportunity comes up for him to expand that, he will. He has gone out and cleaned out buildings that were just these old abandoned buildings that have been purchased. And that's not working on a well. That's not working on someone's air compressor. He just takes the opportunity to do it. He has a, a trucking company with in his own stuff that he ended up with a semi-truck and has a CDL and has been driving and will go build riding arenas for people uh, and things like that out in Eagle. And he does all of these different things. And it's kind of this really great example to me of not only setting like your own limits and whatnot, but also looking for those opportunities in ways that you didn't think were possible before. And for me and bring that with kind of my athletics and where I was and going to the Olympic games I had to create that opportunity. And so I went out and I sat down with a schedule and I color coded when races were and when I would be able to go and what my training schedule looks like. And, you know, I bought a weight set, it's in my garage and I 
was training at home through COVID and whatnot because gyms were closed. And I'm still on a timeline of, I don't know if the Olympics are going to happen. I don't know if they're not going to happen, but I have to create that opportunity and really pursue that opportunity when it comes up. And for someone who's out there starting a business, they're probably further along in life than I am. So, I mean, I'm just going to be honest about it. I, I work at Starbucks, shout out Starbucks. They have an elite athlete program that I'm a member of and they have helped fund me through this and still give me hours at the store and things like that. But down the line, I, I would encourage people to look outside the box and the norm and really embrace setting their own levels of success and what that looks like. And we've come back to that a couple of times where maybe that isn't a full-blown support yourself everyday business, but it's something that you're really passionate about and that you have found this kind of niche to have a side gig with it or or different things like that. But But it's something that people, we get so set on our one track of this is the only way to get to the end goal. And I just would caution people about staying on the rails and being so set in this is how it's been done before you have to be willing to do what hasn't been done before to start something that doesn't exist yet that's beautiful i like how you brought the rails into this as well <laughs> yeah stay yeah. on the skates um well tell people where they can find you and where they can connect it with you oh that's a good question um so i do have my my social media stuff um if you're bored and want to follow my lovely uh trips around the country. I'm trying to hit all the national parks. So nice. Um, my starting in Germany. <laughs> well, no. So all the national parks in the U S yeah. I'm a big fan of the U S national park system. Um, my Instagram is just my name. So it's Andrew Blazer or blazer, depending on how you want to say it. Um, no spaces, no underscores, anything like that. And my it's name, an S not a Z it's an S. Yeah. So, uh, just the name on there is Andrew J Blazer. Um, and then that, links onto my Facebook somehow. I don't really use Twitter. I haven't figured it out yet. I know way behind the times on that. <laughs> Pretty bad at the whole social media thing. Most of them are just me making the same face in different places. Like <laughs> I tried to post some stuff from the games. I, I got really quiet after uh, the Olympics and I think I've only even posted maybe three or four things since being named to the team. And that just felt like what was right for me, but I'll go. start getting some more stuff up there and probably some workout kind of content as I move forward and debating on what I'm doing next, if it's the same thing or if it's going to be something different and whatnot. But yeah, that's it. Just my name, awesome. Andrew Blazer. And cool. Well, Hey man, thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you.